Good morning, everybody. Okay. All right, I'll believe otherwise. David was a shepherd boy who would become a king. He was a poet and songwriter, a soldier and a warrior, and it's believed, and I'm one of them, among them, it's believed that his greatest legacy wasn't the empire that he established or the enemies that he defeated or the laws that he passed. It was the songs that he wrote. Bono of U2, big fan on the front row, would say this about the Psalms. In the dressing room, this is the band U2, in the dressing room before our shows, we would read the Psalms as a band and then walk into arenas and stadiums, the words igniting us and inspiring us. There's a Psalm that they wrote a song about, Psalm 40, that's really powerful. I am with you too. I love the band. I love Bono. I will tell you, uh, I don't know what my life would be like if it were void of the Psalms. Uh, through the years, I've had uh, people ask me, hey, Robert, the word seems dry. My spiritual life, it seems barren. I, I'm not getting much out of the spiritual disciplines that I'm attempting. And I, I'll have a lot of advice. I'll try to give them uh, but because uh, I've experienced it myself. I, I want to buy what I'm selling. I want to practice what I preach. But I point people to the Psalms because, as we said last week, it runs the gamut of human emotions. It taps into the broad range of experience that every body goes through but with such power and my hope in these four short weeks of this particular summer series that the words of these psalms would it would be igniting and inspiring um, in your life last week uh, we looked at a psalm we called it a psalm of searching we were in psalm 139 anybody remember and we drew from that prayer so all the psalms are their poems their songs uh, their prayers and I challenge you, I said that if you pray the prayer, be careful, the 139 prayer. If you pray it, uh, it could convict you, it could um, redirect your, your life, uh, offer you a correction. Remember the, the points that we took from that prayer. Uh, Lord, uh, search my heart, reveal my fears, uncover my sins, and lead me, lead me in the way. And today, in a moment, we'll be in Psalm 15, and we're calling this a song of integrity. So these four weeks, a song of searching. Today, a song of integrity. Uh, next week, a song of forgiveness, and then a song of family. Um, how important is integrity in the world? A guy by the name of Alan Simpson, not to be confused with OJ, said the following, if you have integrity, nothing else matters. If you don't have integrity, nothing else matters. The world that we live in is crying and longing for people to live with integrity. Because in the heart of everybody here, I'm no different, we, we all share this in common, that we, we believe uh, that we've, we, we do value honesty over deception, loyalty over betrayal, uh, cooperation over exploitation, justice and community over oppression. We value these things, but there's been a void. There is a void, um, always has been. T.S. Eliot is a literary genius from old, and he would travel and speak, and a throng of people would line the, the halls to hear him, and his wife would show up at some of these speeches, some of these lectures, with a large poster sign that would read, I am the wife he abandoned. Walt Disney, we've all blessed, been blessed and benefited by that trail of, of happiness 
that he's left with his ingenuity and creativity, but his personal life was one of shambles. And people were hurt by his lack of truth-telling and promise-keeping. He hurt people, and there was this massive gap between his public persona and how he really lived in private. Steve Jobs, everyone would agree, is one of the great business innovators of our generation. And while he was widely heralded, uh, those closest to him, and I say this uh, from time to time, but by the way, those people who are closest to you, they tell your story. And those closest to this business innovator, this worldwide uh, tech innovation guru, said he was hard to work with. He was rude and he was offensive and he left a trail. They called him a hero slash um, fill-in-the-blank expletive, something you can't say in church, but he had a a nickname. If you're 21 and older, Google that after church today, Steve Jobs' nickname. It's nothing I can say in church. But uh, this was how uh, he was known. There's just a a gap between how we live publicly and who we actually are in private. The world is longing for this honesty. The world is longing for people who, who have integrity. Here are four characters from the scripture. I bet if you're an average churchgoer, look at me casting judgment on y'all. If you're an average churchgoer, uh, let me go here. Uh, you'll recognize these, or at least two of these four. Saul, and I'll give you the f- first one and the last one. How about that? Saul, Manasseh, Caiaphas, and Herod. And these four, very different men, but they had a common trait. They had so much potential, but then they found themselves to be a disaster in their personal lives, in their leadership capacities. They started so strong. Job would say this about wicked leaders. They float on the surface of the water. Their section of the land is cursed so that they never go to their vineyards. Notice back up there. They float on the surface of the water. That's a metaphor that I find appealing. If you don't have integrity, it's a surface life. There's no substance to you. You're just floating on the water. You'll, You'll not be remembered. You'll be easily forgotten. Your life will simply pass. They, uh, continuing in verse 24, they're exalted for a moment, then they're gone. They're brought low and they shrivel up like everything else. They wither like heads of grain. J.P. Moreland wrote a book that um, really appealed to me a few years back. And he talked about some traits, some vices that we have uh, growing, burgeoning in America he says that we uh, tend to be immature, selfish, hurried, and passive. Uh, immaturity, he, he describes as, you know, that we have constant cravings, like a child, and it grows into, into uh, adolescence. And these constant cravings, you know, we're, we're, we're constantly seeking approval. And we're preoccupied with sex, with physical appearance, with body image. We, we long to be filled. We, we come to churches and places and we, we don't ask the question, how can the church shape me? We, we want to shape the church with our agenda. We're selfish. I read a book several months ago. I'm glad I did in the wake of the rise and fall of Mars Hill. And it says when um, the book is entitled, When Narcissists Come to Church. Uh, no one gave me that book, by the way. I ordered it, read it on my own. Just want to be clear there. But, uh, but it, it was, man, I just, we're called to wash feet. We're called to, it made me do a study. This book prompted me to do a study of the word power in the scripture and pointing us to biblical truths all the way from Genesis, all the way to the end, particularly in the life of Jesus. And power is something we're to be divested of. It's never to be used for, as the scripture would say, our own vain glory. But 
we're selfish people and we're hurried people. All of us have a hunger and all of us have a thirst and we're good. The more modern we become, the better we get at crafting and devising schemes to hide our thirst and hide our loneliness. And in our busyness, we're not dealing with issues of integrity. We're not dealing with deep heart issues. And in our hurry, we're wearing ourselves out. And have you noticed, this could be true of you or someone you know and love, that we like, man, I need a day off. Man, I need a vacation. You know what? I need an extended vacation. And then you come back from the day off. You come back from the vacation. You come back from the extended vacation and it really didn't help. You might've taken some pictures and posted on Instagram. You might've got a souvenir t-shirt and sunburn, but you're still worn out. And there's something deeper than just physical rest. When Jesus said in Matthew 11, come to me all you are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. He wasn't talking about a nap. That's in first Kings, Elijah. He gave Elijah a nap. But he's talking about something more than that. And we're hurried people and integrity doesn't grow in these environments. And J.P. Moreland would say that we're passive. <clears throat> Here's how I look at that. When it says we're passive, I think that it's talking about how we farm out and we end up sitting out. We, we want our political pundits to think for us. We want our sports teams to exercise for us. We want even our pastors to study the Bible for us. And we become passive. And people that are immature, selfish, hurried, and passive aren't people who are growing much in integrity. So Psalm 15, didn't we promise we would be there? Let's do it. These are only five verses, and I'm going to get five points from these verses. Lord, who can dwell in your tents? Who can live on your holy mountain? The one who lives blamelessly, practices righteousness, and acknowledges the truth in his heart who does not slander with his tongue or who does not harm his friend or discredit his neighbor. Oh, I got the remote control. Who despises the one who re rejected by the Lord, but honors those who fear the Lord, who keeps his word, whatever the cost, who does not lend his silver at interest or take a bribe against the innocent. The one who does these things will never be shaken. Preacher's gonna mention money today. Warning, warning. Preacher's gonna mention money. We're talking about integrity. Preacher's gonna mention money. Let me give you uh, five things from this passage, five ways that you can move to more s substantive life, a more credible life where you will not be described at the end of it all. You won't have some preacher up here having to lie at your funeral. It's one of the hardest parts of my job. Dude was a scumbag. I got to lie at his funeral. That's pretty harsh, isn't it? Don't make me lie at your funeral. I don't want somebody lying at my funeral. I don't want to be described uh, with the poetic words of Job, foam on the water, a life without substance, just riding the currents. Young people, if you're following Jesus, can I tell you the call is not to follow the currents of life, not to be foam on the water. I want to give you this. To, first is walk in righteousness. Rosie Ruiz in 1980 won the Boston Marathon. I see a friend, neighbor, Natalie, I got to call you out. Our next door neighbor was one of the coaches at Millsap. She ran the uh, Boston Marathon three times. How cool is that? Well, I don't, I don't know if she was alive in 1980, but in 1980, Rosie Ruiz won the women's division of the Boston Marathon, and she held her title for eight days. She held her title for only eight days because they noticed, someone noticed that when she crossed this 26.3 mile threshold, she uh, wasn't sweating wasn't panting and showed no external signs of fatigue. I see some marathon runners. Natalie's not the only one. 
uh, you, you will be sweating, you will be panting. Everyone that I've run, I've looked for a medic station immediately. I've been taken to the hospital ambulance in Fargo, North Dakota because I ran a marathon that I didn't finish. So that's embarrassing, quite humiliating. But uh, Rosie Ruiz hung out in the crowd, stealth-like. Doesn't this make you mad if you've done, the, done all the work and training? And she didn't, she didn't not only run 26.3, not run it, she only ran like eight-tenths of a mile. So she, I mean, you're talking about cheating, like that's, that's nasty. Like she was waiting and stealth-like in the bushes and trying not to be seen by onlookers. And then she snuck in and finished and won the women's division. That was 1980, publicly humiliated. In 1982, she was arrested, convicted for embezzlement. In 1984, out free, she had a charge, arrested and convicted for cocaine righteousness, this is the part where it sounds like the preacher's just talking to the young people. I really am especially talking to young people, but to everybody. Righteousness is not a fuddy-duddy old church thing. Righteousness, listen, it'll lead your life to less sin and regret and to more freedom and joy. Righteousness is not a straitjacket. Righteousness is a good thing. And when you and I compromise our integrity, when we take a step toward righteousness and unrighteousness in a small thing, and I'm not necessarily saying cheating at a marathon is a small thing. Uh, I don't want that on my record. But it, there was a, it, it increased, right? From cheating at a marathon to embezzlement to drug distribution. It, it escalated. And that's what will happen when you and I compromise our integrity. Every time we take a shortcut, every time we say no one will know, every time we think nobody is looking, it gets easier the next time. And there's just something about people with feet of clay, you and me, it just, we descend into darkness. And without integrity, without integrity, we'll be the one with someone we love holding up a poster sign saying, them saying they abandoned me. We'll have the people that are closest to us saying unfavorable things about us if we don't walk in righteousness. It's a, it's a really important thing. And David in the, 15th, uh, in the second verse of this 15th chapter, this song of integrity, he would say, acknowledge the truth in your heart. Solomon would say, guard your heart. David would later say in the 51st Psalm to create in me a new heart. And Jesus would say, blessed are those who are pure in heart. When I was a, a little boy, a little, little boy, I was, well, I was born in Fayetteville, Arkansas. And then after that, we moved to Pampa, Texas. Anybody ever heard of Pampa, Texas? We had a couple in the first service. Have you heard of it? Uh, it's um, country music fans. It's right side of, outside of Amarillo, uh, if you know that George Strait song. So it's, in the, it's up north in the panhandle of Texas. And I was so little that I really don't have uh, many memories. I, I have two memories. One, we lived in a little pink house uh, long before John Cougar Mellencamp sang about it. And then I remember driving and being in a cab of a truck and looking out over the horizon. When you're little, everything's big. You remember, everything's just big. And I remember seeing what looked like a science fiction city. And there were tubes and tunnels and uh, there, were, there were hoses and heaters and generators and valves and circuits and pipes and pumps and all this stuff. And, and, and it, it was a refinery. It was a refinery, but to me, it was, as I said, a science fiction city. I was taken with it, enamored by it. And a refinery, I'm just a pastor, so I've got to be careful 
I know that we got some engineers in here, but a refinery, it, it, it does what its name says it, it does. It takes uh, petroleum or petroleum products and it goes through all these valves and circuits and pumps and uh, pipes and tubes and tunnels and things that we mentioned, generators and heaters and all that. It goes through all of this, this intricate thing. And what does it do? It removes impurities. It takes out the bad and then gushes out what is good, what is useful, what is for some profitable. Your heart is a refinery. Everything passes through it. And I know we talk about, as mentioned earlier, Proverbs 4, Solomon, guard your heart. Do you guard your heart? Do you ever guard your heart? We can't measure it, but can you guard your heart? Do you guard your heart? We should. I should. You should. Philippians 4 says, think on the things only that are virtuous and good and lovely and of good report. Only think on those things. Take every thought, Paul to Corinth, take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Romans 12, uh, renew your mind. Think good things, but nonetheless, no matter all the spiritual practices and disciplines, no matter our level of devotion, things still get in our hearts. Things pass through. And this prayer to acknowledge the truth in our hearts. When Jesus would later say in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the pure in heart. It's this invitation to when things pass through your heart, don't let it settle there. And work and partner with God. Live in community so that impurity is refined from your life. The crud and the filth and the stuff is taken out. And what remains is something good and beautiful that will point you to integrity. The second thing beyond walking in righteousness is disallow destructive speech. Now, we won't spend much time here because nobody here at the 11 o'clock struggles with speech, right? I mean, everything you say is honoring to God and other people. So we won't spend much time on it. But let me use one metaphor here real quick. Um, I'm not a big tattoo guy. Anybody got tattoos in the house? We had a bunch at 11 o'clock. Uh, we got them on our stage. I'm not judging anybody. We got tattoos. Uh, this was real fun. We did it the first hour. Just if you have a tattoo, stand up and show us all your tattoos. Just every one of them. We really believe in transparency. Um, please don't do that. Yeah. Someone at the first service actually stood up and started showing. No, I'm kidding. Um, I'm not against tattoos. I don't want to make any parents of teenagers mad at me. I'm not against them. The Bible doesn't forbid them. I'm just scared of needles, honestly. I would need to be fully sedated by a dart gun and carried in there if I got a tattoo. Here's a few tattoos. Anybody live with regrets? <laughs> Committed some sins? Made some poor choices? I am... A Martian. I don't know if this is a, a statement about a distant planet and a faraway galaxy that we've seen some really cool pictures of this week, or if he likes a girl named Marcia and he's joined her love cult. And last one I'll show you. I had to zone in on this because it's kind of down toward the bottom. Thunder only happens when it's raising. Fleetwood Mac, beautiful. Here's, um, here's what I want to say this morning. Tattoos can be a metaphor for your speech. Now, if what I love about Psalm 15, you'll see this if you read it later without the talking head up here. But in Psalm 15, he talks about integrity with people that we love, our friends and neighbors. But he also talks about integrity with 
people that are difficult. And by the way, that's how you grow. But let me say this, someone that doesn't know you, if they hurled an insult from a distance and they don't really know you that well, it might sting. You may want to exact revenge. It, you, if they give you an insult, you may want to match that insult with another insult. You may want to cut their tires or egg their house or talk bad about them or something, but it doesn't hurt deep, does it? Because they don't really know you and you're not close to them. But the people that you are close to, the friends and neighbors that David talks about in this 15th Psalm, man, words, your words are like tattoos and they can put an indelible fixation on you and it's almost irreversible, almost irreversible. And regularly in my line of work, I talk to people who remember the words of a father or an ex-lover or an overly critical mother. For us to walk in integrity, we've got to realize that our words matter. And I would tell you this, I think I'm theologically sound when I say it, there are no neutral words. In Genesis chapter one, verse three, right there at the beginning, it says, when God began to create, he said, let there be light. And when he created light, I mean, he spoke it and it was created and it existed. Let there be light. The older I get, the more I appreciate light because my eyes are starting to grow dim. You ever done that with your phone? Like, man, I need to turn turn this up. And you realize, you go to settings, like it's already turned up. It's already on high. But God, look, I'm on God's side. Light is a good thing. When he started creating, he said, let there be light. When God spoke the first words, when God speaks, he creates, he blesses, he builds, he brings light in the darkness. Remember the story of creation. The earth was formless and void. The spirit was over the face of the deep and God began to speak. And when he speaks, light comes to darkness and life springs into action. That is God. But only two chapters in, Genesis, not 1-3, but Genesis 3-1, someone else spoke. Someone else spoke and he was crafty. In fact, he was crafty almost like he was a serpent. Almost like he was a liar. Almost like he intended destruction. And he spoke to Eve and he said, do you really believe what God said? When he said, and by the way, he lied about what God said. I wanna say to you, there are no neutral words. Your words bring life, create, and bring light into darkness. Or your words do what this passage is saying. Your words slander, your words harm, your words discredit. Nothing is more injurious or damaging to a church than disunity. And nothing adds to disunity like gossip and slander and backbiting and unjust criticism. Nothing like it. To be people of integrity, we need to be careful, as it says in this verse, not to slander with our tongue, not to harm a friend, and not to discredit a neighbor. In Ephesians 4.29, it says, and a lot of you know this, it says, do not let any unwholesome word proceed out of your mouth. That's kind of tough, isn't it? Don't let anything bad come out of your mouth. But only that which is helpful to build others up. No, there's no words that are neutral. Do your words build other people up? He would say in the same chapter of Ephesians 4, he would say, and I bet everybody's heard this, he would say, speak the truth in love. Speak the truth in love. So let me ask you, play a game with me in your mind. Don't answer out loud, but think about the last fight you had 
with someone you love, the last family fight that you had. We'll start over here, Carly, I see you. Uh, tell us about you and Daniel, the last fight you had, whose fault was it? What was the angriest thing that you said? Daniel's trying to shut me up up here. He's like, it's my fault, move on. Uh, we, we won't do that. I picked on Josh and Mariah in the first service, but we won't do that. But think about the last family fight you had. Was it two weeks ago? Was it two days ago? Was it on the way to church? Can I brag a little bit? I know it's a sin, but can I brag? Susan and I never fight on the, on the way to church. We drive different cars. <laughs> Solve that one. What was the last fight? And when you fought, think about it for a second. And don't go back to a dark place. <clears throat> but think about the last fight you had. And have you ever fought with someone you love and you got into it like it got, it got pretty intense? Have you ever heard anybody, let's say you were kind of the bad guy. Have you ever had someone come to you, that family member that, that you love? And have they ever come to you after that fight and said, you know, you just let it rip. And your intimidation and fear and mean, vile words, when you spoke those words to me, honestly, it helped me. It helped me. It kind of it pointed out my wrongdoing. It makes me want to be a better person. Uh, thank you for those vile, harsh words that you dropped. My, have you ever had anybody say that to you? Have you ever anybody said, you know, when you just lost it and when you just slung the venom my way, that ministered to me deeply. It's exactly, faithful are the wounds of a friend, Proverbs. Thank you for wounding me. I, it has changed my life. Let me, raise your hand. Has anybody ever had that experience on either side of that? Anybody, no, but no hands up, none at 9.30, none at 11. I bet nobody watching from home, no, no one would raise their hand because Paul knew. And I believe he pointed to the character of Jesus who John would say he came and he was full of grace and truth. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and the, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and he was full of grace and truth. John 1, 1 and John 1, 14. He came and he's full of grace and truth. Speak the truth in love. Jesus was full of grace and truth. And that's what, when we couple those together, you'll be, you'll be a person of integrity. You'll move closer to being a person of substance, to being a person who blesses and builds and brings darkness into light if you will speak the truth in love. I've heard it said before that grace um, without truth is meaningless. But, or no, grace without truth is mean, but truth without grace is meaningless. It, we need to balance those two together and there's power in it when we do that very thing. The third thing, beyond walking uprightly and not speaking uh, destruction to each other, is to stand against evil. This psalm, um, it talks about the mountain, the temple, the tent. It talks about the hill. It talks about living and dwelling. And when he got to chapter 15 and verse 1, we read it a moment ago, it's a, a textual um, signal of the genre that was popular in the day. There's a lot of talk about hills and mountains back, back then. Now think about it in Mississippi. Uh, we have singer-songwriters that have been super famous, B.B. King and Robert Johnson and Bo Diddley and people like that. The blues, America's music originated right here. Some of you have visited the Blues Trail. My wife from the West Coast thought it was really funny. We were up in Cuomo, Mississippi one time, and there were international tourists in Cuomo, Mississippi, um, at a blues crest. Like, why, there's like 50 people live in this town. Why are they here? They're from Paris. 
and they were looking at the blues trail. But all the blues writers, they, what did they sing about? They sang about the delta and the honky-tonk and the home lives and uh, love that uh, was unrequited and that broke their heart and the hard scramble life of poverty and tough living and the harshness of the delta life. They didn't talk about hills and mountains. Why? Because we're up here in Mississippi. But there, if you lived in Israel and you were composing songs, you would talk about the hills and the mountains. Psalm 24.1 says, Who may ascend to the hill of the Lord? Who may come before his holy presence on the mountain? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to vanity, whose speech is not full of deceit. It's that same language that's replete in the psalm. Psalm 121, where does my help come from? I look to the hills. Where does my help come from? Some of you know this. My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He's looking to the hills. He's looking to the mountains. And this picture that we get in this psalm is one of dwelling with God forever. We're not worthy to be that high up, but he exalts us to live that way. Proverbs 8.13 says this about evil. To fear the Lord is to hate evil. David knew in the 15th Psalm, for us to be people of integrity, we could not just extol the virtues of good without condemning and standing against the vices of evil. To fear the Lord is to hate evil. What would he say in the 23rd Psalm? It's really famous, I fear no evil. For us, it's proper, it's good and healthy, not to fear evil, but to fear the Lord. Fear's a funny thing. Fearing the Lord is not what we would think about. It means on the surface. Barney Fife had a trademark quality in Andy Griffith's show. He was scared. Uh, like our new puppy, he was just scared of everything. Hear a noise, he would do this. And you remember Barney Fife on Andy Griffith? He would get those characteristic bug eyes, just really big bug eyes. And his voice would quiver. His whole body would shake. He would drop his weapon. Not a good idea if you're in law enforcement to drop your weapon. But that's what we're like if we live in fear. What's the antidote to all the fears that we have? To fear the Lord. And fearing the Lord means we'll want to stand against what is evil. We can't just praise what is good in the world. We need to be, if we're going to be people of integrity, and the world is longing for the church to lead with this. We need to call out the bad and the evil. I don't have it on the screen, but Isaiah 5, 20, I, I say this quite a bit around here, but uh, I used to, when I would preach, I would be a little bit... Uh, um, tender around the the prophets because their language is so strong and I don't want to offend modern sensibilities but more and more and more with all the injustice that we have in our world like the prophets man they're bringing sexy back they're bringing it back they're bringing it back because we need to hear these words that are strong because the world is full of evil and Isaiah 5 20 says woe to those who call evil good and good evil woe to those who call light darkness and darkness light woe to those who call bitter sweet and sweet bitter now, that could be a verse from the prophet that could make us look out there at them and go, look at what y'all are doing. Look at your evil. But notice where Isaiah would take it toward the end. He would say in the 58th chapter, they seek me. This is us. This is religious people who come to the temple. They seek me day after day and delight to know my ways like a nation that does what is right and does not abandon the justice of their God. All these are good things. They ask me for righteous judgments. They delight in the nearness of God. All good. But notice 
what he says. Isn't this the fast I choose to break the chains of wickedness, to untie the ropes of the yoke, to set the oppressed free, and to tear off every yoke? It is, is it not to share your bread with the hungry, to bring the poor and the homeless into your house, to clothe the naked when you see them, and not to ignore your own flesh and blood? If we're going to move toward integrity, the 15th song, this song of integrity, would tell us to walk in uprightness. It would tell us to be careful of the destructiveness of our speech. And it would tell us to stand against evil. And the world needs us to do that. And the church needs to be about it. The fourth thing that I would say, to be a person of integrity, you need to keep your word. We don't do well with this. I, for one, have stumbled and failed too many times. As Amber Rose shared in her baptism testimony, I'm with her. I stand in solidarity and say, I need forgiveness. And at times I've been afraid to seek it, thinking it wouldn't come or I wasn't worthy of it. But God is the one. That's the gospel story. We can't miss it. That's the gospel story is that we are, all can be forgiven. Proverbs 28, 13, I prayed it over a man this week. He that confesses his sin and forsakes him will have mercy. Look, keep your word. We live in a time where we have prenuptial agreements in marriage. We have month-to-month leases with apartments. We have escape, escape clauses in contracts. We have free agency in sports. We have a transfer portal in college athletics that I don't think we're ready to bear the brunt of. We have all these things where we typically in so many ways tend to be vow-breaking, work-faking, um, promise-forgetting people. And into this is the call to keep your word. There's a proverb that I love, and I think about it the older I get. I was with a man this week who thought he wouldn't have a chance for this. And God graciously used me as his instrument of grace to say, it's not over, buddy. It's not over, and you've still got, and I don't know when, how much time God's going to give him, but I know His life expectancy on average is out there. And I know the grace of God, and I've seen it happen several times. Though we compromise our integrity, there can be grace on the other side. But hey, I think about this as I think about my kids who really aren't kids anymore. And I think about the things I've chased, the things that I've neglected, the promises that I've made. And I'm at a point in my life where I think about This beauty here, a righteous person acts with integrity. His children who come after him will be happy. The promise is I can be a sheltering tree and that after I'm gone, if I live my life with integrity, if I walk in righteousness, if I disallow destructive speech, if I stand against evil, if I keep my word, they'll be blessed and they'll be happy in part because of the life that I've lived show you a couple of people you probably didn't want to see in church today when it comes to integrity. This is Howard Stern and Dennis Rodman. Dennis Rodman hadn't spoken to his dad in close to 40 years. Really had no, not much of a relationship with him. His dad lives in the Philippines. The last time we checked, had 27 kids with several women He was quoted in a sports magazine years back. He said, I'm shooting for 30. I'm shooting for 30 kids. Could you imagine trying to have more kids when you're not speaking to some you've already produced? 
Howard Stern would say this. I don't feel very good about myself. I don't have a lot of self-esteem. I have an inferiority complex. My father was not a man of integrity. He was always telling me I was a piece of, can't say it in church. Every time I hear my mother's voice say, you are a most special boy, I hear my father say, you are nothing but a piece of, can't say it in church. This call in Psalm 15 is for everyone to keep their word. And I know spouses, and let me just say to men, I am one, I'm just saying to men, there's something needed about us answering this call. So men, I'm gonna look at some of you now. Some of you I know and love. I'm your pastor and I'm your friend. And I'm challenging you to be a man who keeps his word, even when it's not easy. Keep your word. Here's a preaching hero of mine. His name is Crawford Lurit. Sean, I see you back there. Um, Sean and his wife were in Memphis at a church where Crawford's son Brian was a pastor. Sean told me at dinner a couple years back, he said, man, I thought Brian was a great preacher and then his dad showed up one Sunday and Sean's like, that guy right there. Super gifted, super unique. I grew up in, uh, you know, before the internet and the only preacher I knew was my uncle who's our pastor and then I would order tapes off the radio from a guy named Chuck Swindoll. Anybody remember Chuck Swindoll? He's still at it, preaching in his 80s. Come on, hashtag life goals. I was a college freshman in Daytona Beach, going to Daytona Beach at a spring break conference, and I heard Crawford preach. I'm like, he wrote a book several years back, just retired at Fellowship Church in Roswell, Georgia, and he wrote a book. And in it, he talked about, I'm still in just a part of a sentence, the courage, integrity is the courage to do the hard thing, the right thing, when there's nothing to gain. And that's integrity. And right now, I'm cheering for Crawford because I want to be uh, in his ranks, hopefully behind him. I want to finish well. And I want to have the love and respect and admiration of my kids. I want to finish well, but a big part of that will be how do I keep my word and do I keep my word? The last point of our five is to refuse to misuse money. Alex, y'all come up. We're about to close. I'll be fast. Refuse to misuse money. This passage talks about money, and it talks about the relationship between rich and poor. And I did a little bit of study this week. I want to show you a quick list. This is some of the scripture that commands us the proper relationship we should have with our money and with our riches. And remember, worldwide, globally, most of us, if not all of us, are rich. The scripture tells us to have this relationship with money. These promises, if you lend to the poor, don't charge interest. Don't deny the underprivileged justice in court. Make provisions so the poor don't go hungry. Don't turn a needy individual into a slave. Treat lower income workers with respect on and on and on. Pay just wages. All these things are vitally important. So that younger preacher, I'm not young anymore, but that younger preacher who was scared to talk about money because you would tell me I talk about money too much. I'm really not scared anymore because it's what you and I need and it's what the world needs. And y'all know, I, I don't know, some of you may be a guest here watching for the first time. We're a generous church. Our church is really blessed. From the very beginning, people came, and we, even young people, 
had a concept of the fundamental concrete principle from the Old Testament of tithing. And for some people, that was, that was just training wheels. The trump, the tour de force rather, is a life of compelling generosity. But we're still a sleeping giant, our church. The generosity that could be unleashed, the way we could fight injustice, the way we could love people, the way that we could plant churches, the way that we could come around those who are in need. So would you stand with me and let me pray over us. And it's kind of cool and kind of neat and kind of an interesting segue to uh, mention refusing to misuse money right before we pray for the offering. Let's pray. Father, thanks for this morning and uh, this song of integrity. And I pray you help us walk in it, long for it, that we wouldn't be beaten up by it. There is regrets. There is sin. Your grace can abound when our sin does. And help us to take steps toward a more integrated life, a more whole life, because walking in righteousness is a life with less sin and regret and more freedom and joy. Move us toward generosity. In Jesus we pray. Amen.